0: Hello, and welcome to the Meet Your Maker podcast. I'm your host, Travis Ahern. I'm a furniture maker and designer, and I'm curious to find out what makes people make things. Why do we create the space around us? So I endeavored to meet a couple of these people, these crazy people, and ask them questions about why they do what they do. In the first episode, I'm sitting down with Haldane Martin, who is a truly iconic South African designer. Uh, He's been in the industry for many years and has created some truly magnificent pieces of furniture, as well as some brilliant interior spaces. I sit down on an interview that Sarah-Jane Fell is doing on Haldane Martin for lifestyling.co.za, a brand new interior design. Uh, online magazine space. So Sarah and I are good friends with Haldane, and we sat down with him in his beautiful studio home uh, in Cape Town to discuss and ask him about his furniture making and his company and why he does what he does, which was a great place for me to start this podcast. Um... And I took the opportunity to record this interview um, while sitting in on it. Uh, it is our first recording, so please excuse the the quality of the recording as we <laughs> as we get into the space and um, learn ourselves how to record these things. But the essence is there, and I hope you'll enjoy the interview with Haldane as much as I did. Um, getting inside the head of a, a, like a true, a true legend in, in the design field is something special. So without further ado, I give you uh, Haldane Martin.
1: Hi, Haldane. Thanks for joining us. Let's just jump straight in. Um, so you've been making and designing from an early age. What inspires you to keep creating?
2: Yeah, right from when I was a child, I really loved making things. Um, and then starting to become a designer just taught me how to make things better. And um, even though I enjoy making things, I'm not great with my hands. So for me, um, the design side of making is really what I love mm. and, and what I'm what I think I'm good at. Is so so my craft I, I craft things in the digital space first, and then um, taking my knowledge of how things are made. Um, you know, while I'm designing, so that the designs then are are easy for manufacturers, or relatively easy for manufacturers to make. Um, so, why do I? Was your question?
1: Question is what inspires you to keep designing? Uh, okay, what to mm-hmm. keep creation, designing? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I think I'm, I'm like addicted to designing. I love the process, um, the challenge of going from you know, from just a very fuzzy, rough idea and then like forming that idea and making it more and more um, clearer and clearer in one's mind and then eventually the object exists. So that whole process of from nothing to something is is as close as one can get to magic nowadays yeah. I feel.
0: Um
2: so yeah, that, that process is really fulfilling for me and um and I also, you know, I can I can I think, get into the flow state when I'm designing, you know, when I've got my headphones on and and just designing away is, nothing makes me happier. Um, Yeah, and and it's multifaceted, so there's many sides of design that one has to consider through the process. So it's quite a whole process, you know, from the concept and you try and relate that concept to something relevant culturally. and something in one's environment, uh, so you're taking that that side of things, and then industry and manufacturing and craftsmanship, um, and then you know fusing that with the desires of the marketplace and emerging trends and you know the macro, the big trends and the sort of important um, trends as well as the little fashion, the short fashion trends. So. Um, yeah, I mean, a knowledge of of um, of materials and processes is important, and then also ergonomics and how people live and how how people's spaces are. So it's like it's yeah. And I I always kind of um, wish I had studied architecture because I think that as an education is a very hel- or it used to be taught in a very holistic way. Um, but I've ended up making objects, <coughs> which is, what I like about that is it means that I can be a much smaller team and, and can be hands-on right through. So yeah, so I'm, I, I still love doing it. I get a lot of fulfillment out of it because it's so um, broad and interesting.
1: So it sounds like it's something that comes quite naturally to you. Is it something that you find particularly easy? Or are there areas that,
2: that you find more difficult and have to work harder at? Um, I think as a designer, you, once you've finished something, it's almost disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, when you know you you go, yeah, there's a, there's, a, it's like that you when you start out a design, there's this like there's something pure that you that you going after or you, you're trying to pursue. And then, when you actualize it as best as you can, um, the challenge is almost over. And then it's like like a to climax, uh, or almost, yeah. And then, and then when, but then when you do the photo shoot and you see everything in a great setting and everything's perfect, all you know, all the issues that have been resolved in the prototyping phases, and then it's fulfilling again. And then also to see, you know, our customers. Living with the furniture is is you know another level of fulfillment, and to see something age and see how it ages, both stylistically and and the con you know the content of
3: it how that ages
2: is also interesting to see. Um,
4: yeah, so
3: but I think if, if I can jump in there, yeah, like, it's it's quite interesting. You know, you, you talk about that magic moment. You know, like in it's almost. Like creation, you know, yeah. like you're creating something out of nothing, or out of yeah. the spark of a thought. Yeah, you're creating something, exactly. yeah. and there's highs and lows that go through that kind of process, yeah. Yeah. you know, because you essentially you're changing a space, you know. Yeah. And you've got a responsibility to to do so. Yeah. You know, you've got a responsibility to um, make the space better. Exactly. You know, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Especially when one's using resources and energy, you know. One has to, you know, I think Philippe Stark spoke about that. That's, um, yeah, that is, is, you know, you're dictating the fate of lots and lots of stuff, and and as you know, on an overpopulated planet, you know, stuff is questionable. So mm. if you do anything, you better do it well.
1: Do you feel a responsibility yeah. to, as a designer to create something that's better than what previously existed?
2: Yeah, definitely, or more relevant, I think, you know, because there there have been good solutions, um, you know, throughout time, but as new technologies evolve and as new lifestyles emerge and new values, you know, pop up in society, there's a, there's a need to, to relook at things and recontextualize them into, into the now. So, so it makes me yeah. think
1: of the statement like the world doesn't need another chair. How do you feel about that, and how do you see the changing role of the designer?
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the world—you know—we don't need anything. I mean, we could just live in caves and hunt animals and or pick berries or whatever. But well,
1: I mean, there's like a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of chairs already. You know what I mean? We could probably recycle yeah.
2: secondhand chairs. Yeah. Too. So, and there's <laughs> definitely a place for that. And um, um, but I, th- I do, I do think that it's, it's a worthy pursuit to to um, constantly be recontextualizing things and it keeps us present you know the world is changing all the time and and uh, our environments I think should reflect that change and and I think there's value in it and things you know I think if you compare like you know very primitive like say I, I would imagine the first chair that was invented was a stool, you know that like a rock. A lump of rock. <laughs> so, I mean, to to now, like I would say, the most you know, cutting edge chairs would be, you know, a, a monoblock plastic chair made from a, a bioresin plastic that's really quick to make and very resource efficient and can be recycled and all of those things that have become more important. You know, I think it's better than a rock. At the end of the day, I agree. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. So so they, I think, chairs and objects basically reflect the time that they are made in, and and mm-hmm. um, and a good designer can do that really well, and and make something beautiful, and it gives us a sense. I also believe that contemporary design can give us a sense of of belonging through a sense of belonging to our time and place. So I think when one does when one interprets all of those factors that go into design in a in a good in a whole way, then you end up with something that one can relate to and one can engage with effortlessly and 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 beautifully. One other kind of more superficial response to that question is that um we get bored. You yeah. know. If we don't want to go to a cafe and see the same chairs we've been seeing the last 10 years yeah you you, you kind of you, that's why we love to travel is because we we ex, expose our minds to and our eyes to new experiences and and we i think we really need that from on a mental level that kind of stimulation
1: okay and then so i mean look going back to like the role of the designer do you see your your concerns as a designer different now to what they were when you started out um in terms of like the role in, in I would say
2: I, I I would definitely say in my earlier career I was striving a lot more to discover myself as a designer and um, I feel that happens almost more naturally now and and as I get older the challenge to stay relevant is more important um, uh, so and I think also we you know you gather like decades of experience and and knowing you know if you if you don't want an ugly world to to be visible in your thing detail it like this or if you you know a machine can make something like that and um, and these kind of shaped seats are better than those kind of things. so you you get you gather a body of knowledge through through your practice um that hopefully the stuff you do design later in your career is more resolved than,
5: yeah, yeah than mm. earlier on.
1: And and so you've shifted the focus from furniture to interior design, back to furniture design. Yeah. What did you learn from your work as an interior designer that has shifted your perspective as a furniture designer?
2: Yeah, I think the um, the importance of of trends definitely. As an interior designer, you want to be on trend. You, you know, that's kind of what your clients. Expect from you, so so I would say that's... yeah, doing interior design taught me about that, and then there's a lot of practical, businessy things like um, providing CAD models for interior designers is just helps them do their job quicker and better, um, and is a good business move because it, it means that you're more likely to get your furniture specified, um, and then yeah, and then also. You know, before I was an interior designer, I would kind of always be amused with interior designers' obsession with finish. Like what color something is, what texture it is, um, and almost the form and the ergonomics and the other practical things were secondary. And being an interior designer, I realized how important, I mean, very much what you're doing as an interior designer is you're creating atmosphere through yeah, form, color, and texture, and and um, you know, as a way of creating a cohesive space. So, so we so yeah, value those. So the kind of it's talking to value the more superficial things. Yeah, and I say that in the best kind of way because I think interior design is valuable. Um, but yeah, finish and trend, I, I have more focus on that now than I used to. I it think, also seems, yeah. it
1: seems like you're seeing your work in a more holistic perspective. So it's not just yeah. the chair on its own and all its glory, but yeah. how. It, works with its Uh, environment.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. The question Mm. on, like, trends, like, you talk about trends, Mm. um, and I found it, like, quite an interesting topic. Yeah. um, You say it's good to stay on trend. um, Yeah. Or is that just as an interior designer? Um, And when does it become important to start thinking ahead to sort of setting trends? And where do trends come from for you?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think no individual can set a trend. I think we can... We can be contributors to a trend, but I don't think we can. I think the days of like the lone individual blazing a path, and yeah. I think that was an illusion anyway. But yeah. And especially now with with social media and like massive access to very niche media. Um, so, so for me, what's more important is to be sensitive to. Emerging trends and and to not necessarily be copying trends, mm-hmm. but to be insensitive to a mood and yeah. a, and and often that mood will will have a form and a color and a and a, and a mentality to it. So so yeah, when I say trends, I, they, and then they're like much deeper, longer trends as well. Like the obvious one is the ecology and, yeah. and um, socially responsible yeah. design and those sort of things. Those are long trends. And then you get the little trends of like geometric pattern and this these sort of colours and, the, um, but yeah, I mean then you look at trend forecasters like Lee Edelcourt and 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 others. I think their work is actually quite profound. It's, and sometimes they get it wrong, but the, but often it's quite profound and it links to the what's going on in culture and, and in our society and um, yeah, so. Um, so that interests me and it's um, yeah and I do also at the same time I don't believe in throwaway you know that I don't believe that you know just because something was created to 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 express a certain trend doesn't mean that that thing becomes useless yeah. afterwards. It, mm. it might fall out of flavour for a while but I, I think a good design will always be interesting and that's what trends tend to recycle as well is that the good stuff from the past tends to be still good and interesting. So mm. so there's <coughs> um and that as I've got older as a designer, I also like I love the way objects um embody a time and place, you know, and, and and that there's and how our perception of those things change with time as well. Like some you know, I I was talking to somebody else the other day about, you know, these white plastic garden chairs. I believe that in fifty years' time, they're going to be museums dedicated to that type of chair, mm. because it's a very we hate them because mm. they look cheap and nasty, and they break, and and uh, they end up all over the place broken and so on. But as a, you know, to make a chair, and also one day there won't be any oil left, so mm. it'll be wow this. This is what they made in the, in the early, days, I guess, oil, and yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 1970s, and yeah. 80s when they first started those chairs. But so I think the way we'll experience that object in the future will be very different to how we experience it right mm. now. Mm. And it's really just because you know now it's not that interesting because we're so in it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. Yeah. And I think like what I like about that is there is the sense of time being cyclical, not just linear. And then, like, trends almost speaking to an emerging collective consciousness. Yeah. And you as a designer, like, it's yeah. you're you just trying to ride that wave at the beginning of it rather than at the end of it. Yeah. And, you know, like yes. the steampunk trend with truth coffee, you were seeing yeah. early on. Yeah. And by the time it's in Mr. Price, no one wants it anymore. Yeah.
2: Well, Mr. Price's customers. Well. Can I say <laughs>
1: that?
2: <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. That that sums it up well.
1: Okay, yeah. and then um, what's the biggest differences between your furniture collections in 2020 versus sort of 10 years ago? And yeah, earlier?
2: I think they're much more resolved. I had more patience now to really work something out properly and to prototype it until it works. Yeah, there are issues with some of the older stuff that never were that that weren't resolved properly that that irritate the hell out of me now. So, <laughs> so I would say. Um, and and I guess there, there was a lot more idealism, and um, especially in an, in an object like the Zulu Mama chair, quite naive idealism, um, that, which was sweet at the time. But, you know, now, I, I, you know, especially in like the current...
1: Idealistic in what way?
2: <clears throat> well, like the whole... So it was about um, the Zulu Mama... Is about the sort of feminine gesture of gathering and holding, and um, and also about embracing South Africa's indigenous heritage with uh, first world industrial kind of technology and mm. and and culture. So
1: through so the use of weaving, yeah. Okay. So
2: the frame was very masculine, very Western. Uh, you know, made out of stainless steel and CNC bent and tubing. It's some industrial material. And then the, the weaving was an ancient technique of hand-woven hand um, and, you know, the idea that it would create employment. And, but when one really investigates all of those impulses in t- through today's uh, cultural lens, you know, I would be called out as sexist. Um,
1: Maybe exploiting people.
2: Possibly, I yeah mean. and and kind of this patriarchal kind of view of and this romantic idea that people want to just carry on doing handwork you know and um <clears throat> so yeah, so that's how i th- i still think it was a a good chair in its time, and it did capture that kind of naivety of South Africa in the um you know in the early two thousands or late nineties. I wouldn't do that now. You know, that's not what I try and pursue now. Yeah. Um,
1: and then in the sense that they have, your earlier pieces very much embody the South African context and the South African design language that we're yeah. emerging, is that still important to you with your latest work?
2: Um, I do think place is important, but I, I also, like what I'm sensitive to you now is like, I'm not a big fan of African nationalism and the kind of negative side that that is, that's in our face right now. Um and so I feel like doing overtly African design is only feeding that monster and it's mm. if you know, so I don't I don't wanna do that right now. Mm. Um I do think that that I think my South African mentality will come through anyway. Um but it won't be I'm not gonna go and steal in the belly patterns and pop them on mm. fabric or something. Well, because I feel like that's that's not my culture, yeah. and, and 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 people would be offended right now. You know, if I'd done it in yeah.
1: 1994,
2: yeah. people would have loved it. But um, but maybe, I'm not black.
1: Maybe anyway. not so much indigenous African, but <laughs> black collections like the slingshot collection and the, the hula do draw on the South African definitely, yeah. Language,
2: yeah, yeah. But it's not a yeah, it's not like a caricature of South Africa. So, I mean, the sling chair is also tapping into an international trend of of like the, that sling typology being people are, you know, the Scandinavian brands are reissuing the chairs of the design in, in the 1960s that made use of leather and timber frames. So this is a, you know, in contemporary interpretation of that interior trend. Okay, yeah. so yeah. Is um, that
1: typology not originated in sort of safari African design?
2: Is it I safari? mean, it actually, it, it's... Well, I guess the first ones were like, you know, around colonial times. Um and then but then the Scandinavians definitely did a take on that in mm-hmm. the I guess in around the nineteen sixties. Who was um,
1: making those pieces in colonial times?
2: It w- would have been you know, S- Cecil John Rose would have brought them down. Yeah. <laughs> um
3: Yeah, you know, there wouldn't have been any famous.
2: There wouldn't have been some famous designer. It would have been done as a, you know, would have been something that just popped out, and nobody knew who designed it. But it would have been leather and timber and and probably you know a fold up chair and so on, Um, which was a solution for colonialism, you know, for traveling to the colonies. Yeah, you know, bringing your furniture with you on a boat. Yeah. Um,
3: kind of like the one <laughs> idea of going on safari yeah. So like yeah. It kind of
2: lent yeah. itself. So lent so itself to that. I mean and Yeah. So my my one is more take on the Scandinavian take on the, yeah. the on the colonial one. So it's yeah. And Canadian the Hula steppers. that's also kind of connected
1: to American
2: Yeah. Dorothea I mean it's actually an American design originally that was then copied in South Africa in the nineteenth. 19- 70s and 80s and there were a lot of them in suburban homes all over mm. South Africa and you find a lot of them in 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 second hand stores now mm. um so because it was so popular in South Africa it has it has that nostalgia with it but it actually was a mid-century modern design in uh, the it designer's name was Salterini an American designer
5: okay
2: yeah um okay. Yeah, and he, you know, he was using. That's the skinny leg, and all of that was very mid-century modern. Um, but it's a, a, a quite a well-resolved chair. It's it's comfortable for a metal wire chair. Um, it stacks. It's elegant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it's it's also touching on that geometric trend. So it's kind of merging, you know a bit of nostalgia, a bit of mid-century modern, and then a bit of the now geometric trend colors and colours. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So given classic furniture typologies new life, or yeah. contemporary age, yeah. so that's something that you do a lot. Yeah, and I think… And what's the distinct flavour that you bring?
2: I would say that… Um, I would say most good furniture designers will do that, because furniture is a, a cultural object. Um When one relooks at old type and also because furniture is such a old tradition as a as an object, it's not like a cell phone or something which is brand new technology. Um it has this history. Um and so to to reference things um and I think all creative arts do in a way. You know, art literature, um so I think it gives an object a little bit more history to it, so, you know. So yeah, compared to like a, you know, a, a thing like the the polyhedra table that I did once, that didn't reference any Anything. previous coffee table. It's an yeah. To
1: cure noon in the
5: space yeah,
2: yeah, and and there were, it was also like a geometric trend that was emerging in architecture, um and. And and also 3D printing, which was like a new manufacturing trend. So it was it was an investigation of that and and um yeah. But it, but as an object it doesn't you know it's not easy to live with in a no. you know, in most people's homes and spaces because it's all almost this alien object no. and it's plastic, which we we don't really relate to in furniture. No. Um yeah, and it was super expensive, and and yeah, it,
4: so we didn't
2: sell. Uh, yeah, we didn't sell many, um, but but you know, so it was yeah. And I guess also earlier in my career, I was exploring these different avenues and different materials and processes. I was curious as, as a designer, so um, I think that's important as well as a designer that you explore. Yeah, um, and now. I guess I'm still exploring, but I'm kind of also trying to stay more balanced, and and for me it's important that things still work. It's still something that can Mm -hmm. be sold, something that can be made, that it's going to be durable and it's going to be comfortable. It's got to tick all those boxes. It can't just be super creative and
3: fail on other levels. I think think just to add to that, um, it's an interesting point with furniture when you talk about creative arts. And furniture is creeping into that bigger and bigger, like more and more now yeah. especially. Yeah. Um and yet furniture is something you actually interact with. Yeah. You know. So quality becomes critical because you want to be able to interact with it for a long time. You know? Yeah. Um, often we find people talking about like a chair that they had in their childhood. Yeah, know? and it sparked memory because they interacted interacted with it so much, you know. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a design piece, mm. but you know, we yeah. are creating these art, art pieces now, these yeah. furniture pieces that are designed pieces that people are potentially going to live with for decades. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, and again, like that's just speaking to like what you were talking yeah. about there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, there's still a place for art design that's, you know, doesn't tick every one of those yeah. practical boxes. But for me, I've, I'm more comfortable um, in the, the more practical side of the world,
5: yeah, um,
2: and yeah, I studied industrial design, and I, I I like those industrial design values that I think they um, there's a place for them, so that's that's my yeah. Idea. What are the key
1: values there? I the things like ergonomics.
2: Yeah, so all those things I just mentioned, like you know, it's got to fit with society and culture and trends. It's it's got to so that you can sell it, mm-hmm. um, and sell it. Well enough that it sustains itself as a, as a, and it helps the business that makes it sustain itself. Mm-hmm. It's got to be manufacturable within the current realm of technology. I mean, one can always push that envelope, and you know, and and um, adapt technologies to suit, which I think is interesting. But ultimately, it's you know, it 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 lives in a bigger hole, and it mm-hmm. needs to, so. So it's got to be manufacturable, um, and then durability is really more and more important. It's, things have to last, like, yeah. and they should be repairable when they start looking tacky. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that our that our resources and our energy is really precious. So to to make it last, is, and also, yeah. I know I used to hate the idea that my stuff would end up in a junk shop one day, but yeah. now I actually like the idea. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if my children one day stumbled across something and they were like, oh, "That's you know, when some did," and they were like, "Wow, that's still there," <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and yeah. So I think there's something really nice about that, and it's it, and, and objects kind of get this. Nostalgic history gets attached to them and the stories they tell. And they, and, yeah. and I think that's why there is, um, you know, why antique shops and things have, have that. Um, there's something not, you know, why people go to Cork Bay to look at antique shops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it's interesting. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and then, and ergonomics, very important. And also, I think, yeah, it's kind of respecting one's. Clients to to create something comfortable mm. and not just, just something that looks that cool. Pain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I think that's also as I've got older. I think that's become more important. comfort. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Is creating iconic design as important to you now as it was with your earlier pieces like the Um
2: We, I think, all designers want to be remembered, and so creating iconic pieces will always be important. And maybe I shouldn't say all designers, not everybody, I guess, but um, I think, yeah, it's a definitely a valuable pursuit. It's not easy, though. Uh, one doesn't always succeed at creating iconic pieces. I mean, they, I think when all of those influences come together in a really unexpected new way, that's something iconic is then created. Um, but That is... Uh, it's. I think you're lucky when it happens. Mm. Yeah.
1: And yeah. is legacy important to you as a um, as a designer?
2: I think in South Africa it is uh, more so than than Europe right now because I think we don't have those stories. Um, mm. We don't have enough of those stories mm. um, of. People that are known for something they've done. So I think, I think in South Africa there's a place for it, and, mm. and I do think it impacts younger designers um, and their passion and pursuits and like what they're going, you know, what they pursue through their career. I think is influenced by, by the, the designers they study. Mm. So I do think that that it has value and that it's worth. You know, with I mean, and one again, one's lucky if that happens. Yeah. So well, I mean, to you, yeah.
1: you personally,
2: is legacy important, and how would you like to be remembered as a designer? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Let me. I, no, I do. I do think it's important. to me, Yes. Yeah. And it would be great if 50
1: years if time or 100 years time, how would you like? It would be to great like be if
2: there was like collectors and people that valued the, that it was designed by me and that something lasted that well. Mm. Um on all its levels, so, and I think it gives South Africans something to be proud of, so I do think it's, it's, um, yeah, so legacy I think would be cool if that happened, yeah, but maybe that's just uh, egotistical and narcissistic, that's not know. But as
1: you've said <laughs> to me before, there's a place for ego.
2: Yeah, um, I think I'm more neurotic about becoming redundant or... Um, Irrelevant, you know, or just out of touch. Like yeah, yeah as I get older that becomes <laughs> the greater fear. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I look at t- old people and <laughs> wonder yeah. why they wear the clothes they wear. Yeah. And and yet like perhaps young people look at me and look and wonder the same thing. So Do yeah. you think
4: it highlights? I think I think youth, like
2: right? I, was, I was I watched a comedian the other day talking about aging and that how we do just get out we fall out of touch, you yeah. know. And uh and that is how it is, how it is. <laughs>
1: um how would you describe your furniture as like an ethos or philosophy? Is that something you can capture in a sentence?
2: it's all these things that we've been discussing that is yeah i mean how 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 to bring it down to one thing or one quick line um um you you should have the line. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the
3: one line at the sales thing, Danny. Here. Yeah, what's it say on our, <laughs> our website? Danny, <laughs> there in our way. what are the
2: first lines on Me, our, Danny, our website? <laughs> Danny.
6: How do you introduce yourself? Hi. So I, yeah, I help Haldane with everything. That secretly my title is his PR um, director. Um, what we brand with, um, especially lately, with Haldane's latest collections is that it's premium outdoor collections designed in Cape Town. So although we manufacture throughout South Africa, we basically we, we have a strong um, sort of atmosphere and expression of our own Cape Town, very international, mixed with local South African and, and the rest of African kind of flavor.
1: Okay. And then mm-hmm.
2: how does
6: being
1: Cape Townian find expression in the work?
2: Yeah, so yeah, Cape Town does have a great mm. lifestyle. I mean, we're known for this that it's for me it's it's much I take a lot more ownership of my city than I do of my country. Mm. And and that um yeah, so so instead of striving to express a, a South African identity, which includes Springboks and Brice and <laughs>
5: <laughs> and a lot of stuff that I don't
2: really resonate with, um, like expressing Cape Town, I do really resonate with it because I love the city. Um, I love I kitesurf. Um, I used to mountain bike more, and I will get back into it. And you live the city, from, yeah. I love, I love going to the away. beach, and I and I love the food culture in Cape mm. Town, and the hospitality industry is really strong here, and I like. The fact that we that we have the the European influence in the cities the, the most strongly throughout the, and I think it adds a charm to to Cape Town and adds a, a civility and a sophistication um, that I really like. So um, and you know my parents were well not my parents my grandparents were em- immigrants mm-hmm. and came to Cape Town and made a home for themselves and um, and this is my home. And so, yeah, being partly Cape Town is, is yeah. something that I can partly say. Um, so is that the time
1: of right? the family that came from um, Scandinavia? Or? Yeah,
2: well, both. I mean, my, my, my grandparents uh, my, on my mom's side were from Norway. Um, and they came after the Second World War. And they were very poor. Um, and they had other Norwegians that helped them establish themselves in Cape Town. And my grandfather was a carpenter and a fitter and turner and he, he worked in the mill up the road in observatory.
1: He'd never mentioned that to me ever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was a very, uh, and he, he also, before he settled in Cape Town, he was on, at sea for seven years. And him and my grandmother in the Second World War got separated and he was at sea for seven years. And then he wrote to her and said, meet me in Namibia or then into Southwest Africa. And so she sailed down and then got to Namibia, and then they said, "I go to dedicate on." So, mm-hmm. um, and then my dad's side is from Scottish, and and you know my grandmother was from English family, and they they came, they were my great 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 grandparents mm-hmm. from Europe. So, um,
1: and your grandfather was a carpenter. Did you learn from him? Or? Well,
2: he. I have a little stool that he made in the in the bathroom. Actually, I got it from my mom's house the other day. It was it was more for him. I mean, his main job. So he was a sailor, a whaler, in fact, which is yeah. not very PC nowadays, yeah. but um, yeah. that's what he was. And then he worked as a fitter and turner in the mills, and it was like a uh, a millwright or something. I think they called it. And then he had a, a carpentry workshop in his garage and. I do have fond memories of going in there with him and seeing all his tools beautifully laid out and the smell of sawdust and you know he would make things while I was there and he made me a bow arrow and yeah and you know he didn't speak uh, English very well so you know he, him making me something was um, his way of of expressing you know his familial love yeah. for his grandchild so yeah it was a very fond memory. Um, and I would say the Rimpie collection, uh, that kind of joinery, very much was the kind of stuff he was making. So that piece was for me very much a memory of my grandfather. Yeah. Um, even though the Rimpie is obviously a South African uh, contribution, but the the joint, the legs specifically, the joinery on the, on the, yeah, just a traditional timber leg. Um, <coughs> yeah, but. Yeah, and he had a handlebar moustache, tattoos, you know, the anchor, and, the, cool. Cool. and he would raise his fishnet vest, and drink his whiskey, his comb in his sock. Yeah. He was the, the original Cape Town hipster. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. <laughs>
5: okay. Um,
2: yeah, so that was my grandfather. Yeah, and lived in Devil's Peak, you know. Oh, wow, yeah. okay. Amazing.
5: Okay.
1: Um,
2: uh, yeah, so that's.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and exactly. through your life, was there ever like a moment for you that changed everything in your career that led you to where you are now or something? I think,
2: um, so making stuff as a kid definitely, uh, you know, set me on this path. Then a skateboarder mate of mine suggested I study industrial design. And um, that was very formative. And uh, I came down to Cape Town to do that. And I, yeah, I learned a lot. and. Um, it was a very new course, so we kind of took up the responsibility of of our own education and, and, you know, passionately explored design and discussed it and, you know, had a lot of conversations in class about it. And yeah, so that was great. Then I um, worked as an industrial designer in Joburg just for a year. And then I think the first lucky break I had was I had designed these animal CD racks that were laser-cut. And laser-cutting was such a new technology that I didn't even have a computer. <laughs> so I hand-drew these shapes and then... Animal
1: CD racks? Yeah, yeah. Like shapes, animal shapes? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. What so there was animals? like
2: a lizard that went yeah. on the wall that the back of the lizard took all the CDs. So it was kind of inspired by like African curio art. Quite, mm. um, quite and kind of normal mm. Catherine kind of illustration. Um, there was a dog barking, dog, and a crocodile, and a I'm, still,
3: I'm still super curious as a maker, like, <laughs> how you hand drew and how did the laser? Yeah, cutting yeah, work, like so, a computer. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I drew it, you know, like a big technical drawing, yes, full size. Yeah. Like the, the lizard was about one and a half meters long or so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then took it to them, and then they scan like, scanned it. Scan it or measured it or I don't know, but then they redrew it basically. Yeah. With okay. yeah, a laser cutter and then laser <laughs> cutter, so that was really funny. <laughs> what year
1: was that? It sounds like like 1992. Yeah. No, 92. So, but anyway,
2: that that range I had sold like a couple in Cape Town to like decor shops that. Oh, yeah. were That supported me, but not like a handful. I sold about five. And then um, I met with John Vogel, who was making the Kudu coffee table, side tables at the time, and Conrad Hicks, who's a blacksmith, as as he still is, and um, Ja Ferreira, who's a fine art dealer. And um, we decided to go to the New York International Contemporary Furniture Fair.
1: You were like twenty two or so. Yeah, or so probably
2: twenty three. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, and we got a, a, some funding from the DTI, and we like took all our products as hand luggage, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and, and we got to New York, and the, like the um, the customs people were like, "What the fuck." <laughs> And they are like, x-raying our stuff and they were seeing, like, <laughs> animal shapes and then kudu horns And <laughs> they were like, what the fuck is this? Like, where's the paperwork? Like, yeah. how much, like, you're supposed to pay duties and, like, there's all this control around bringing stuff. you the like, mm-hmm. <laughs> They like, let us through. <laughs> this was obviously pre-9-11. So yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, we stuffed all the stuff into a taxi and, and we stayed with uh, John's. Uh, cousin in New York, and it was amazing—an amazing experience. And um, I had a lucky break in that there was a a guy from uh, London who had a small homeware brand, and he liked the design, and he offered to. Well, he first wanted to buy it, and then it wasn't—he couldn't find it cheap enough. So then he offered to make it. He, he was already doing laser cutting stuff in London, so he said, "Look, we do laser cutting and." Folding a powder coat and powder coating, we can make it and pay a royalty. So, so I did that, and then for the for about four years, I would get a royalty check every three months, and and that enabled me to explore other furniture types. I made lamps and couches and yeah, and then I started working I with John John Vogel back then, and then later Jamie Hamlin joined us, and we did stuff together, and it was very much learning, you know, and it was school. Everything was hand. Designed, yeah. Um, you know, freehand yeah. sketches and then rough models, and and then working with the manufacturers to make stuff. Um, yeah, and then AutoCAD came along, and then everything went very straight yeah. and very
5: perfect.
1: Do Any of those pieces still exist from that time?
2: <coughs> um, yeah, Genneth has the CD rack of mine, and and uh, her boyfriend's father. Owns one of the the Daddy Longlegs chairs
5: um, oh,
2: cool. that we made. That was very much me, John, and, and and Jamie. Yeah, so there are some of that early stuff mm. still around. Um, and
1: was that when you formed Brave New World?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That was Brave New World. Was the business that made the CD racks. So, oh, okay. And then John and I teamed up, and we decided to keep Brave New World as the as the name. Yeah. Yeah. It was a company called Greenspace for very short, which was me, John, and Jamie. But when Jamie left, then we took on Brand New World.
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so I'm thinking about a, um, the sort of the Cape Town angle and and how Cape Town has really developed a, a reputation as having a strong furniture design scene and making. Yeah, like, was that so much the case when you were studying, or did that emerge through your career? I think that
2: that's kind of when it emerged. Like people like Carol Boys were just starting to make a name for themselves. Um, I mean, John moved down from, I think he studied in PE, but I think he was from Durban. But then he decided to live in Cape Town because Cape Town was just more open to what he was doing, the, the market, I guess, mm. and, and also manufacturing. Mm.
7: And
5: a little um,
1: cosmopolitan.
2: Yeah, I moved down from Joburg mainly to surf so mm. <laughs> and to, to study industrial design. if I studied in Joburg, I would have... They insisted that I did my military training first, yeah. And I didn't want it. I wasn't into the idea of army, yeah. yeah. And not just because of apartheid, but just because I was too much of an individual. Um, So yeah, so Cape Town was more attractive in that way. And I mean, I think John and I and Jamie, we all worked on the Good Market Square for, if you know, we did our, our thing. We all sold stuff at Grahamstown yeah. uh, Fair, or whatever it's called, the art fair. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think Caton was a lot more receptive to creativity. Yeah. Um, customers as well as manufacturers were small enough here and, and curious enough to entertain our crazy ideas and, you know, and go along with these youngsters. Yeah bashing stuff out, yeah. So yeah, there is definitely you know, Cape Town facilitated that and it still enables it. You know, there's a lot of my manufacturers that I started with, I'm still working with them. You know, my powder coat is actually the people who were powder coating my Animal C racks twenty five years ago. Oh amazing. Yeah. Really cool. yeah, And they're still the best part of coating in <laughs> Cape Town, you know. Yeah, what are their names? Quality coats. Quality coats. Yeah. Give a shout out to them. <laughs> there you go,
1: yeah. 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 Something, um, something to
3: say about quality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I guess I've heard that Italy was very much that kind of melting pot. Um, and that's why the European furniture industry emerged out of the Italian design scene that was a similar, Mm. there were a lot of artisans and uh, that, you know, the cultural side was also strong in Italy Mm. and Rome and all that stuff. And that's, you know, in the 60s and 70s, Italy became a a furniture epicenter. You know, that's why there's the Milan Furniture Fair. So I guess Cape Town is is our mini version of Milan. Yeah.
1: Looking back on your career, is there anything that you would do
2: differently now? I would like to have made more money by now, for (laughs) sure. Um, But um, I think I also grew businesses too quickly and kind of was quite arrogant about, you know, I mustn't do the dirty work, I must employ someone to do it for me rather. And I think it was more just because I was disorganized or was... Um, you know but now I don't mind doing the admin and, and a little more of that stuff so um. and so I'm not like driving my business to grow and like overreaching and that sort of, so I guess mm-hmm. that's that's what I wish I had, I wish I would kind of just been more patient and mm-hmm. kind of just like being a little more restrained on, on growing and, and kind of just plodded along Better, but I also in hindsight though i've I've learned a lot like because I've tried out interior design and I've been in partnerships and I've designed lots of different things and had lots of different angles and um you know experimented with art design and all of that, I think it's kind of all informed what I do now, so if yeah. there isn't you know one can't really regret it, so. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I haven't asked you enough about your latest ranges, and I just wanted yeah. to ask what are, what are some of your favorite pieces and why?
2: I like all the pieces, and, and because I feel I've resolved them really well.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, some are more boring than others. And, um,
1: what are some aspects okay, so, of certain pieces that you just love? So I
2: do love the Hula chair, and especially the lounge chair version, because it really is a, a good fit for the South African. Um, it's not a very precious chair, you know. It's not. It, so it's like it has the sort of humility of South Africa, and, you know. It's like there's a bit of Boomerang plum in there, but it's mm-hmm. in a, you know. So I mean, I get feedback from Dubai that they're like, oh, why is there nothing on the armrests and like, why isn't there more upholstery on the back and, um, why, is, and <laughs> why under the bun? <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and for me, like, there's a kind of. Re- There's like a South African-ness to to it that, I think that's probably why it was such a successful chair in the 70s and 80s, is that it kind of suited our mentality of, um, you know, the thing's going to live outdoors, like it doesn't have to be this plush. It's super practical. I think South Africans are quite resourceful in nature and even like borderline people, because there wasn't a huge
1: amount of money back in those days. Can I ask you about
3: the design process of that? Yes, yes. An interesting one because you said it's like a throwback, you know, and yeah. like it's bringing it back. Yeah, it's definitely you know I haven't seen many of those just recently, you know. but yeah. I definitely know them very yeah. well. Yeah, you know, In your design process, yeah, maybe you can step up like.
2: What yeah, did you spark so. That? Like, where did you come up? With that? Um, I mean, it came out of an interior project that yeah. we were working on. I was doing a job for a, a bar restaurant in Botswana in and Um and I felt that really needed to be quite an African uh space, but also very uh very graphic. We used a lot of patterned brickwork um and and like quite bold wallpapers and stuff. Um and so how long ago was that? Uh, four four years ago we were working on that project. Um and there was also the the geometric thing was very big at the moment. So so the pure circle as the ring for the chair mm. yeah. was an early thing and it definitely reminded me of of Yeah. yeah. At first I was trying to put plywood seats and back on and that wasn't quite working and then
3: Did you ever have this moment that it was just like when you saw it, like in the set that it is now? Nice yeah, like, wow, okay, that's a yeah, It
2: was okay. more a chipping away process. Chipping away. Yeah. Yeah, okay. was, I think um the memory of that chair was when I did draw the the chair with the round ring, I was like, "Oh yeah, the the hoop chair." Yeah. And then I thought, "Oh, this is actually definitely worth yeah. like re re exploring." Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then the actual yeah form of it was just um you know I remember the the downside of that chair. Even as a child, I remember the, the discomfort of sitting on that mesh. Yeah, the, like, like the waffle <laughs> legs, especially you know, ladies don't like that. So, so bringing the the, the wires legs closer legs. together was was an important step. Okay. Um, because it then there's you know there's less um, point load on your bum. Yeah. And and then you know I I spent time making a nice cushion for it, not just some mm-hmm. thing. Um, and then. Yeah, just getting the ergonomics of that curve right, but still very simple and easy to make. And then the detailing of how the wire goes underneath the ring so that when you're lying back, you don't feel the, the edge of the ring on your back. and th- You know, simple things like that. But but that just takes refinement, you know, stroking it on in the 3D model. just Yeah.
7: Um,
2: and then, you know, discovering how when you... um. Uh, what's the process in Rhino when you when you make a curve go along a curve to create a surface, um, yeah. and that's how the seat and the back. So you know when you take a ring and you turn it at an angle, and then you you project a line from that ring to make the back, and yeah. from the ring to make the seat. it Actually, gives you the perfect
4: mm-hmm. to get
2: the angle right. It, it gives you the perfect ergonomic form for a seat. So yeah, yeah and that's. Yeah. That's that kind of craft of design that right. comes through in the three d modeling that you know you know the the surfaces that are easy to make and at the same time as being ergonomic, and that's yeah. kind of a lot of furniture design is is that blending yeah yeah, yeah. of of the ergonomics and the engineering and the trend yeah so yeah,
4: like,
3: yeah. 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 Now I've got an interesting one yeah aside so like on through like we've got a client and and he sat in two different chairs and immediately said one was terrible and the other one was perfect. Yeah. And he said it was because of the curve. Yeah. Of the seat. Yeah. Um, but what he didn't realize is that the curve in both chairs was exactly the same. Oh uh, yeah. And actually, I think it was more commentary on that he just preferred the aesthetic of the one over uh, the really, other. Yeah. But he had to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. It must be there.
1: What's well, possible yeah, that that that's, aesthetic appeal kind of affects your experience as
2: well? Okay, yeah. yeah. It preempts your experience. Yeah, so that I would say right now is my most favourite piece. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and again it's because it's a chair, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah. the sling chair doesn't exist yet. I have a feeling the sling chair is going to be really comfortable. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So
2: what well, are you gonna
1: make it out of
2: leather or um I'm gonna do both. So we will do leather, but obviously leather can't be used outdoors. Yeah. And and we very strongly focus on the outdoor at the moment. So there's a sling fabric made by Sunbrella, who we it's the fabric we use for all our outdoor upholstery is a really um, heavy duty, and they're good colours. Um, it lasts forever, um, and then I am. We do want to explore um, canvases, like hemp canvas, and, and so on. So we will do a canvas version as mm-hmm. well. Um, yeah, I think hemp is a really cool material too. So
1: yeah,
2: um, and that'll That's so got the chair will have black print, hey? Yeah, yeah, and and it's very strong. I mean, they used to make. Sales out of hemp, yeah. um,
4: you know, way back in of the away from
3: hemp yeah.
1: <laughs> it was like so a whole um propaganda thing about the people making cotton, I think it was the British, they yeah, that's they right. sent cotton, I think, to they
2: banned marijuana so that they could yeah. stamp out hemp, yeah, yeah
1: exactly. There's a documentary about it, yes, it was yeah. related to the Egyptian cotton trade and all that. yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I think. And then what will be interesting with that chair is that those three surface materials will make three very different feeling, you know, the leather, the canvas and the the kind of contemporary sling fabric Mm. will have three very different looks, even though it's the same chair. So you can kind of dress it up or make it more traditional, yeah, so it will be interesting to see how that, yeah, so I'm excited about that. I'm always excited about the thing I'm working on. Yeah.
1: and where are some of your latest ranges in some of the more
2: high-profile um,
1: lodges or hotels? Yeah,
2: so the biggest project we've done in the, with the new collection is um, the game lodge just outside of Cape Town. Um, what's it called? Oh, the
1: one in Aquila.
2: Aquila, Aquila okay. yeah. Um, which is, you know, a lot of Europeans come to Cape Town and don't go anywhere else in the country, so it's like... Mm. They're you know, you can get the Big Five experience. you know, a few hours out of Cape Town. So, um, and they have quite a big restaurant area, so there's a lot of hula chairs there, which is cool. Tasha's have some hula chairs as well. Then one of my favorite little projects is um, Eton in Stellenbosch. It's a lovely little coffee shop. Okay. Very girly and, um, yeah, the hula chair and the polka table is just perfect for that space. Yeah. Um and then right now with COVID going on, so there's been a big drop in hospitality projects. Obviously, um, we we have quoted on a number of hotels and things that actually got cancelled. Some have been postponed, um, which will happen later in the year. But while that's been dropping, the like the high end luxury residential has been increasing. So we're doing a lot of exciting, yeah, like beautiful homes and. Fresno and Camps Bay and mm-hmm. those kind of areas and Durban and Jo'burg as well um, you know where it's someone who's
4: yeah that's that's
2: making their home beautiful and mm-hmm. livable and this i think more and more um we value the outdoors more and more and that is expressed mm-hmm. on our patios now mm-hmm. as well so um so that's been great for us to and get into the home dwelling yeah and and Social for me as a designer, it really resonates with me because I, I love my kite surfing and that outdoor lifestyle. Um, so and, it, and it's a little more casual than the interior side of furniture, um, and it's a little you know a little more technical, in that you've got to be careful what materials you use, and you've yeah. really got to think of the sea air and how that's going to mm-hmm. affect something. So and the sun, yeah. Yeah, all of those factors. So, um, so I like. So I really feel like I've found my place as, as a furniture designer. Specifically, um, with,
5: outdoor or with, yeah, specifically or
2: with outdoor. Yeah, specifically with outdoor. And I would say my furniture appeals to the hospitality market because it also works for the residential market. That it mm. that it doesn't feel like it, if you know the places the hospitality projects that have my furniture will be the more um, refined and more homey and more... More boutique maybe. Yeah, more like it'll be the more sensitive, it won't be a Formula One hotel, you know. It won't be a, it'll be the more um, sensitive hospitality projects. So that, that are wanting a home away from home luxury experience.
5: Yeah, you know yeah. that
2: they're trying to create. So, um, so we, we, and I think also hospitality went through that trend over the last 10, 20 years. Is that it's become that the home, home away from home is has, is important. I suppose also yeah.
1: people travel so much. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, so um, you don't want that sort of corporate hotel
5: experience anymore.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. Basically, okay. yeah. And international orders.
2: Look, we are. We have. Um, got distributors, uh, we've got uh someone in, in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um and we've got um they're all interestingly exile Africans. We've got someone in New York as well, Saza in New York. Mm-hmm. We also have some interest from also an exile African in Spain. So that's mimic um, consulting. So yeah, still early days. We haven't pushed it much. Um I'm also always um, curious to see how things roll out, because I do think there's an element to localization or localism or yeah, you know, the way that, especially now with COVID, you want to support your local businesses, and I think, so we are benefiting from that. I think South Africans are shopping local more than they ever have, and they really are keen to support us, especially through this difficult time. So. And I think all the South African brands are are benefiting from that and, and enjoying that. So, and I think South African designers have got better over the last ten, fifteen years. And we, I think I do think we're making really good stuff. Um, and then, you know, so all of those reasons that makes local lacquer also makes exports more challenging, more difficult. Because um, so I think it's. It's natural that it's happening through ex South Africans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I would imagine, even especially Saza, I would imagine a lot of their customers are ex South Africans. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um,
1: I guess as South Africa is kind of math, leveling up to the rest of the world in terms of design and all sorts of other yeah, things, yeah. There's a, you develop a taste for South Africa. You know, yeah. Like the Tim Atkin's wine report recently—he was saying some of the best wines in South Africa's history are coming out of this country, yeah. um, like 2019s and that kind of thing. Really, so don't yeah. no need to buy French wine because yeah. the wine here is amazing. And it yeah. seems like that's kind of across the board. Yeah, yeah. Due to globalization, or yeah, a whole lot
2: of. And look, I, I also think I still believe the Europeans are the best designers in the world, like the Berlak brothers and um. You know, they're really outstanding designers and they are really steeped in, in the furniture design culture and tradition. Uh, and it's a lot more natural to them. But I think we have a voice as well and we have something to offer that's slightly different.
3: Um
2: we'll see. I, I am obviously keen from a financial point of view to get the export to grow. Yeah. And 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 it also is is a nice um affirmation of one's talents if one can sell overseas. So mm. so it's definitely um, but I think our core market will always be South Africa. You know. Um, and yeah, I just hope that our economy will get through this difficult time and that our politics will grow up. I don't know how much we can really contribute to that, but yeah.
1: Well I think you contribute in, in, in your own way of running a business.
2: Yeah, and I think if, you, if I refer back to the Zulu Mama of how, you know, I was wanting to employ unskilled women in the townships or in, in rural areas initially was the initial impulse. and That didn't work because of logistics. And then wanting to employ, you know, unskilled workers in, in the townships. Like now I'm pretty happy if I create employment for the CNC operator at my everyday factory down the road, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, so that
5: you yeah, and if
2: if a machine can make something more effortless than handwork, I think that's that's to be embraced as well. So um yeah, so so the you know, so it's a little more of a mature kind of take on
5: you
2: know, contributing to South Africa. Yeah, kind of
5: I think
3: I think just to add on that, um, you know, from my own experience, uh yeah, a lot of people are quite quick to bad mouth Quality in South Africa, um, you know, especially when they're comparing it to Europe um, or something like that, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll quite quickly say, "Oh, the quality is not the same." Yeah. Um, or the South African market doesn't have the ice of quality. Yeah. You know, because they won't complain. Um, so I think, just as a like a kudos, you know, I think a contribution to the South African economy and a contribution to South Africa in any sense, proudly or whatever, yeah, is. To have the quality that you have. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and and helping to raise the bar. And, yeah. And and you know, hold yourself accountable for quality. Yeah. Just to, to raise that bar and yeah, get it there, you know. Um I know the Germans did that um way back when. Yeah. Because um, they had a reputation for poor quality in Europe at one
2: time. Oh really? Yeah? Yeah.
3: And it was wow. it was actually You <laughs> can't say that now. I yeah. really can't say yeah. that now at all. Yeah. yeah. And I think there was a moment and I think it was I read it somewhere. It, it
1: almost changed as a as a matter now. of like a sense of nationalism and yeah, you know, yeah. it was like a political campaign or yeah. something that there but
5: the, was
2: a, a I think we need a lot that. more of that. That and I think in a way the hipsters are forging the path yeah. with artisans being cool again. So yeah. um yeah, that I guess will filter down mm-hmm. uh, all the way eventually. So um I do also think though that that something that does lack with a lot of European design is that that kind of pursuit of perfection has almost become sterility as well. So there can be, yeah. and I think that is often the appeal to South African design and art, is that there is a a, a vitality still to it, because things are a little raw, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, we naturally gravitate to an oiled finish from timber, or, you know, a, a more... um tactile kind of experience mm. even though it's still polished and you know perfectly made and so on whereas an Italian manufacturer will you know want to polish it just that much too yeah. much you yeah. know and, and their design will be that much too safe and too yeah. too like engineered and yeah. it, it, it loses a bit of vitality so and I think yeah, yeah so I think there is a you know the hula chair is like an example of that I mean if you really it's it's well made, but it's not perfect. You know, it's it's. I'm still allowing. I'm not like flogging my factory to like polish every weld and like. Yeah. You know, it's kind of there's a there's a um, a kind of acceptance of the process as well. Mm. And I think mm. yeah, so it's a little more casual. Like the yeah. the little skinny lines are not totally fucking perfect. If you look yeah. at it at an angle, there's a little bit of, yeah. but it gives it a bit of life, still, You know, yeah. And, um, and it's perfect enough. So there's, I guess,
3: yeah. I guess that's also then. You, I mean, we've you, been on this book, but um, you know, quality as a like, what is quality? You know, and yeah. Using that as the example, you know, like that's your your line of quality is what you accept at the end of the day. Yeah, you yeah. Know, your perception of quality is what you what you see. Yeah, but quality, yeah. You know, for someone else it might be different. You know? Yeah. For a German, it might be oh, your point two of a millimeter. Up, yeah. That's bad quality. You yeah. Know? But that's not. What, what we see is quality. Yeah,
6: I do think that um, we've changed our idea of luxury, mm. and yeah. of what we're valuing now as mm. people yeah. is really um, you know comfort and connection True. and human nature, like you said. And these are things that we really value. But I also think that that comes from our South African voice. Because things being shiny and expensive and stuff is not really a, a South African value. Yes, and I think mm. Cape Town, um, Cape Town is known as, as a beautiful place with beautiful people and and, beautiful and things. Yeah, and, it's like a casual sophistication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, yeah. that all comes through in your in your pieces. Yeah, yeah.
2: That I've never aspired to status desire. Yeah, you know, there's there's like there's the kind of customer who will buy something to show off to their friends and make themselves feel more important and more like they've made it in the world. And there's other people who will buy it because it's beautiful, or (laughs) you know, they like the like the way they're going to live with it. Mm -hmm. And and I'm kind of lean on that side of design. Mm -hmm. Like design can be this sort of very snobby, status driven kind of. Yeah. Elitist yeah. practice and I think like my Scandinavian heritage like keeps me away from that that there's more authenticity and humility in in the things we make and that they mm-hmm. they're not they and or another way of saying it is that status has evolved that what's really status now is caring and and mm-hmm. Caring for the earth, caring for people, mm. caring for one another, caring for our families, uh, caring for our city—that—that that is what we aspire to now, rather than flashing wealth mm. and, exactly. and, so and, and being value. famous. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that's what we hope to embody in, in the things we make. Is like that. Those n- newer values that are not like driven by new yeah and, yeah.
6: yeah. I had a
1: conversation with a designer from Joburg recently, and they like teasingly said, Yeah, but the difference is, you know, someone in Joburg will be wearing jeans, but they'll be wearing their red snakeskin Gucci boots. Yeah. And they were like, And the Cape Town will be wearing their Birkenstocks, <laughs> which is a bit extreme. It's like, <laughs> I don't own a pair of Birkenstocks. <laughs> but I think the point is that Cape Townians have a little bit more of a laid backness and, yeah. and, and a, that appeal for comfort and not yeah. needing to be yeah. uncomfortable for the sake of aesthetic or. Yeah, being over materialistic. Yeah,
2: but we still love good food. Yeah, we still have good taste. Yeah. yeah, we love good wine. Right. We love That's good amazing. art. Yeah, you know, and we love beautiful places. So yeah, yeah, it's like casual sophistication and and a comfort with oneself. Yeah, and and yeah, and I think you you know to move to Cape Town, you're kind of turning away from, you know,
1: the rack race. Yeah, the
2: like the, in the old days, it was like you were. You know, if you wanted to make money you moved to Joburg, and if you wanted to have a lifestyle you move to Cape Town.
4: I think um
2: there's different reasons why people move to Cape Town now that are more politically driven. But um you still I guess now it would be like you know, if you want to make more money you leave the country and if you Yeah you're okay making what you make you stay in Cape Town. Yeah. I don't know. What drew me to Cape yeah. Town was
1: the creative scene, you know, yeah. in like Durban where if you were a, a creative, like a writer, you end up working for Unilever or Mr. Price. Like there wasn't yeah. a
6: publishing scene, there
1: wasn't a yeah. small art scene, but I think specifically in the sort of advertising industry, yeah. and publishing was here. So yeah. A creative appeal. And then coastal, not coastal, is the next question. Yeah. Like, if you live coastal, you're not going to live in land. Yeah. That. yeah. But it's just a lifestyle thing. I have one more question that yeah. we haven't touched on. Is um, your... Decision to rebrand from Haldane Martin to Haldane. Yeah. Tell so
4: I think that's
2: a number of reasons. Um, the first is I needed to mark a change. I needed to, you know, I had flipped and flopped, I'd been in furniture, interiors, and then back to furniture. So I wanted to mark that change that I'm, you know, that, that things have changed. So changing the name. And then, but then the reasons for shortening it to Haldane, well, I mean, I could go even a step further back was like going from Brave New World to Haldane Martin. That was a decision to really put myself out there as a creative and as a designer and to build a name and a reputation for myself. So I used my full name, kind of like the way an artist would be known, you know, William Kentridge or whatever. Um, So that was a strategic decision to, Instead of coming up with another company name at the time when I, when World's World um, closed down, um, and I, and that worked, that definitely put me on the map. And I even you know added iconic design to kind of put myself out there as an iconic designer, and it and it and it worked. And now I'm not trying that hard, so I can drop the formality of the surname. And it's more casual, so it's Haldane. it's also an unusual name it's um and it's a great google name you you know there aren't a lot of Haldanes out there in the world um but I think the main reason um is to drop the pretense of the surname and the formality that's associated with the surname, and it's just me it's just Haldane um and and so. Yeah, so this, so an outdoor furniture is a little more relaxed. Um, and so the name is, is kind of a little more, captures that a little bit more. Um, but I also didn't want to completely let go of what I built with Haldane Martin. So retaining Haldane and retaining the, the backwards H that is a chair was, was strategic decisions. And then we worked with a really great graphic designer, um, Monday Design, um, Francois. I've always admired his work. Um, and he I think he did a really good job of just evolving the H, just perfecting it, stoking it a bit more and then you know, joining it to Haldane and then getting the fonts right. And yeah. So I think
1: it feels more like a brand evolution than a rebrand.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was the the brief and the intent. And, um so I'm really happy with, with it. Um, I'm really happy with just Haldane. It's also much shorter when you have to recite your email address to somebody, <laughs> um, yeah, so, and it's an unusual name so it, it tends to, people will remember it, hopefully they don't get too shy if they don't know how to pronounce it, but yeah, you can yeah. now on Google go onto one of those name websites and it'll pronounce it for you, so, <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, can
1: just go to yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 and in many ways, it's also honoring my mother. I mean, she was, you know, she gave me the name. Um, I mean, obviously, i honor my dad as well, but um, my mom, both my parents gave me a very creative childhood. Yeah. And I really value that more and more. Um, and it just is natural for me to have had the life I've had. Well, the life I'm having, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> is is not over, is to, um, you know, I just am naturally who I am because of my parents, you know, so yeah. That's, yeah, my, my dad was a musician and was in the music industry for my formative years and they were very rock and roll and had wild parties and um, and that's kind of open mindedness. And my mom was a crafter and kind of sold at the village market in Bryanston and, you know, was always making things. And I remember going with my mom when she tried to, when she was selling her first things that she had made and she was nervous and neurotic about it. And if somebody didn't buy, she was deeply offended. And, <laughs> um, you know, but me trailing along with her and buying fabric at the Oriental Plaza and that sort of stuff. This, yeah, i had a great impact on me.
0: Thanks for joining us on this podcast episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as, as we did. Um, on a sad note, uh, eight days after recording this, this interview, uh, Haldane's mother passed away. And so on that really sad moment, um, we would like to dedicate this episode to Solvi. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you on the next one.